0: Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy.
1: All right, everyone. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche. They're the layer one blockchain that is fast, stable, and scalable. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. For now, let's get into it. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You're here with Mike and Michael took us, took us however many episodes to finally solve that. Vance and Yano, fellas, welcome
0: to the show. What's up, guys? Yeah. So, Michael, you just, you just really hate the name, name Mike, huh?
2: No, I don't really hate it. It's not a great okay. name. It's not
0: a great name.
1: You just I, think it's a was... worse
2: name than Michael. <laughs> uh, that's, that's factually accurate.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think Michael has some prestige to it. I'm also not a fan of, I rescind, actually, I don't want to, I take you, back you, my offer to you, be Mike Michael, I don't want to do it. You
0: say Michael everywhere, like your email's Michael at, but you just yeah. get bodied and just let yourself be Mike. Don't, hey,
1: what are you, what are you trying to do here,
0: right? <laughs> you would <were> try <trying> to <laughs> pit,
1: pit the Michaels against each other? What? What is this? Exactly. What is this? Where are you Yeah, right Vance now? and I are, are just my, sitting on
0: the set, sidelines, yeah.
1: <laughs> why, why does it look like you're coming live from a sauna or something like that, or like a 70s, <laughs> yeah, where Where are you? <laughs> Undisclosed
2: I'm location sauna. That's how yeah, that's how relaxed I am. Yeah. Well Not my, my location is uh, currently at the framework office in the Bahamas. Um, <laughs> we're uh, we're we're shutting it down. So I uh, had to come here live and close it up.
1: Yeah. Are you guys also audited by Arminino? It's like you FTX and Binance. <laughs>
3: that's that's the auditor. I think if we gave those statements to our LPs, they'd be like, these aren't real. Like what are you what are you guys doing? <laughs>
2: Is anyone literally
3: moder- one? Of, I was going to say literally
2: one of the first questions that you get when you're fundraising is who is your administrator and who is your auditor,
3: and where do you custody, and,
2: and where do you custody? Uh, mm. And if they don't know the names of any of the three of those places and they
3: don't trust them, red flag. Not going to give you money.
2: Yeah.
1: If it's if it's not a big four, I mean, I was laughing at the. I don't know if you saw the Enron. I forget the. I forget his name, but the Enron guy who's been brought in to be the CEO of FTX
0: John now. John Ray JJ or something. Yeah. He's Jay actually
1: or... he's actually got a couple of zingers in his in some of the material that he's released. And he basically said the auditor who's best known for being domiciled in the metaverse. You know, he's just <laughs> I don't know if you caught that, but the guy's it. got a bit of a sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, um, he's like
2: a old salty Bankruptcy guy. And imagine him coming in and being like, this is real. You idiots gave this group of people that much money. Yeah. I mean, it's comical. It must just be like tying together loose ends of spaghetti and trying to make a make a puzzle piece out of it. It's
3: it, it feels really, like him insane. and it feels like the, the guy Terry from the CME and like the whole Chicago CME CBOE crew yes. is having their little victory lap right now. Terry One thing I just want to make now. very clear. Terry is not here to save us, uh, no, you know, full stop. No. Like he, he is the reason why a lot of these systems are so siloed and, and are so backwards and inaccessible to people. You know, let's not throw like you know the baby out with the bathwater and then declare Terry the new king of our space. I don't really think that that's appropriate. I also doubt that conversation happened. That that conversation sounds like a made up conversation. You know, so, let, and
1: then let's, I told let's him he was a scammer.
3: You know? Four to one, I have more money in my pocket <laughs> than you have net worth. That's not yeah. how you talk to people no. at all, at any level. Yeah. Like, and if you do, you're not at that level. Um, yeah. so, no, but I do believe
0: pump that pump. Terry's been watching this go down, just like pouring himself a you know a little bottle of uh, McAllen, just like yeah. yes, yeah. yes, <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> You know what energy <laughs> he was projecting in that in that interview was, have you ever seen Alec Baldwin's character in Glen Gary, Glen Ross?
3: Yes. You know, he, he kind of yeah. comes in,
1: he says, first prize <laughs> is a Cadillac. Second prize, <laughs> set of knives. Third prize, you're fired. That's how he that rolls. That's how he rolls. Sorry, Alec, yeah, what yeah. were you going to say? No, I was, I was going uh, to say,
2: just to clarify, this is Terry, who is the head of the CME. Who apparently had a conversation with SBF, called him a fraud and a scammer to his face, said some other crazy stuff, uh,
3: <laughs> unbelievable stuff. True. How big? How big uh, was the fish? You know, <laughs> this big? Was it a shark? Like I, I just don't. I you know, yeah, it doesn't seem like a real. Yeah, I'm not buying right?
0: it. <clears throat> mm. Um.
1: All right, guys, let's get into the stories of the week. Um. I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the updates on DCG's attempted fundraising for genesis we know that they were seeking basically emergency relief of a billion dollars that amount has been lowered to 500 million i before we get into the specifics about genesis i'd love to get your guys thoughts on just dcg in general it's it's been kind of surprising to me to understand that there's credible risk that dcg actually might be in trouble up to about a week ago it looked like this was just contained to to genesis and maybe we can take this back to to this idea, Barry Silbert background, twenty sixteen, kind of twenty eighteen time of, type of time frame, talked about a lot about DCG as building the Berkshire Hathaway of crypto, and I think you can you can gain a lot of of how he viewed the space and what he was building with sort of this portfolio of five different companies that were all very infrastructure based, all very picks and shovels sort of oriented, and all aimed at producing cash flow, which was going to go into funding. The investment side of business. I think there there are a couple of reasons why the analogy or, or why it hasn't worked out exactly as he might have hoped. But I'd be curious to know how you guys think of DCG as a business and and what sort of the the trouble that they that they find themselves in now.
2: So, so DCG at least is the stalwart. They're the OG. They're the ones mm-hmm. that created the first uh, digital asset trust, which now is Dracio um <clears throat> genesis is the largest lender uh in the industry period uh or at least was um and i think they're one of the first if not the first uh registered derivatives exchange uh, genesis is uh in the u.s as well and and so they, they've kind of gotten this uh, this monitor being the first, the biggest, uh, in a lot of different ways. They also own CoinDesk, which um, you know, one of the I think it was Tarun who officially pointed this out. Uh, CoinDesk was the publication that pointed out the balance sheet, which kicked the the dominoes rolling that ultimately brought down FTX and Alameda, which then ultimately brought down ostensibly Genesis as they're seeking emergency funding. Kind of funny that one subsidiary ends up taking out the other, but ultimately I think, uh, so Barry put out a letter, I think it was yesterday, uh, all the days are starting to run together, um, where DCG is seeking emergency funding to be able to stave off this illiquidity crisis at Genesis. And I think that's really all that it is. Um, But you know, thinking back to who is Genesis, who is DCG, who is Barry? I mean, they've been historically some of the most capitalized people in the space. Um, it's the largest uh, digital asset trust, both in uh, GBTC as well as ETH. Um, and they are one of the biggest operators uh, in, in kind of the, the lending space for crypto, period. Um, so to say that they're massive is is kind of like the best way to describe it.
3: They also own Foundry, which is now the largest Bitcoin miner in the world. Uh, yeah. You know, depends on how valuable you think that is, but that's, you know, a big business in a bull run. Um, Grayscale is the largest cryptocurrency asset manager on the planet uh, at this point. They have about, you know, 10 billion, 12 billion of AUM, something like that. Um, and, you know, Barry says that <clears throat> these companies are going to spit off about $800 million of cash flow. And at, and at the beginning of the year, there was a round that was done into DCG that valued it at ten billion dollars. Uh, I'm not sure if they actually issued more shares or if they just bought back secondary. But no, it's just secondary. Know, just secondary, right? So, so like it was marked super high. You know, nine months ago, this was one of the most successful companies in the space. Now everyone's talking about bankruptcy. I like. I'm not as uh, convinced that this is as big of a problem as people say, like a lot of the news cycle entrance I see on Twitter really are, are like pushing this narrative of like, you know, all the OGs are dying. Like, you know, this is like going to go, Oh yeah. Like they're going to redeem the trust. Like all the GBDC I bought is going to go up two X because they're going to redeem it. That just makes no sense at all. Um, and, and why does that make no sense? If you look at the sum of their business, Grayscale is the most valuable part and it's spinning off even this year, 200 to $300 million uh, of fees, you know, this year. And that's quite substantial. If anything, they're going to protect that asset, and you know try to fill the hole with any other you know assets that they have. They also have 200 funds and investments in their portfolio, some of which are very very strong. So this company seems to be much more capitalized or better capitalized than people think. I'm just not that worried about about them. Um, it is kind of interesting to wind back the tape to um, this summer with Genesis um, and their role in a very interesting swap between. Uh, the luna foundation guard three arrows and themselves and and what happened in that swap was uh doe took a million a billion dollars of ust swapped it by a three arrows in genesis for a billion dollars of bitcoin mm-hmm. um and then genesis was left with this ust you know what would i do if i were genesis and i had a billion of ust i would probably short it to to you know neutralize my exposure um and you know what happens when you short a billion dollars of ust you know, the price could go down quite significantly. And this swap happened, you know, a week, two weeks before everything blew up. So like, if you look at everything that's happened, and, you know, Genesis is rolling it potentially, you know, that was one of the crucible moments of this market. And, you know, they're right in the middle of it. So like, it's better capitalized than I think people understand. But I think the role that that desk has played in the ups and downs of the crypto market is not fully understood. And I think it's much larger than people Understand as well.
1: Yeah, I think there was an there's something else that happened with Genesis last year that I've I've, I haven't confirmed this, so I want to say this is just something I've heard from from someone I trust. But there was a change in compensation structure at Genesis, Mm -hmm. and this was probably a story that many of you who've been operating crypto for the last two years will know. It was extremely difficult to maintain talent at any one given period of time, and there was the a discussion internally about how can we incentivize our traders and the, our salespeople basically to give them more upside, lower base, higher variable upside, they wanted to keep them. So a larger percentage of the, especially sales desk at Genesis became commission. And when it's like, hey, we wanna go out and get commission, some of the standards about what they would accept as collateral went down. And then the risk and compliance team was basically told, hey guys, go, go play in your corner. Basically. And that might have seemed like the right decision to make at the time, but you can probably trace an enormous amount of the strain away when you're kind of looking at how, why were they willing to accept FTT of all things as collateral? Kind of
3: explains all that story.
2: Not not just FTT, locked FTT,
3: unvested FTT. Yeah. You know, the, and, are, and, GBTC, are, and GBTC, and GBTC, like that you literally cannot sell. Yeah. Many such cases of this as well. It's not just them. Like I'm sure you guys felt this as well. Last peak of the bull market, it's pretty hard to maintain talent. People wanted a lot more. You know, you were forced to negotiate with them. You know, this year it's way different. Everyone's suddenly very happy to have their job. Um, but that's kind of how these things go. I I think the other thing
2: that you know we've been thinking about, just like pulling back the timeline of everything that happened there's so many examples of just like bull market thinking versus, you know, what is rational and what makes sense in a sustainable ecosystem. And this is just another example, I think of like, you know, to your point, Mike on, you know, variable compensation versus fixed compensation leading to less desirable collateral being posted. I think that's just like what happens when incentives run awry and like when bull markets start to take over and this like, this model of we need to do everything. We need to move at the fastest speed possible. We need to keep charging ahead. And you just kind of get over your skis. And ultimately, like the ones that got further over their skis and others are the first to fall. We're still picking up the pieces of everyone who ultimately ended up like getting too far over their skis. Anybody who's left standing, I think ultimately will have all the star tissue to tell for it. And we're going to pick things back up and and build back better. But uh, (laughs) it is just like classic uh classic bull market thinking build back i think uh, that always
0: happens yeah i think that happens in all bull markets but this yeah this this bull market specifically it felt like there was a mentality that this was the last time to capture market share that like this was Mm -hmm. the time if you're a media company this is the last time that it was only crypto media companies all the other media companies are coming in if you're an exchange like Uh, or if you're like a VC, like, okay, it's no longer just crypto VCs. Like now, like all the other, like web two VCs are playing at the table. Like this was the, and so, but what happened is it caused people to get way out ahead of their skis in terms of leverage specifically. And you saw like DCG took out that $575 million loan. One was to buy back shares. Uh, the other was to, um, uh, the other was to make investments, right? Like that is a gross misallocation of maturities, right? Um, uh, or misalignment of maturities. you're You're taking out short-term debts to invest in long t- equ- equity that doesn't pay back for like five well, or
2: 10 years oftentimes. i'm at, I'm actually gonna push back on that one. I, I think that Barry had the cash flows over the over, over the duration of that uh, five hundred and seventy five. let's let's call it you know five hundred and seventy five over, probably got done you know, 18 months from the maturity if the maturity is in May of 2023. Yeah. Um, so what we're talking about is 18 months of cash flows flowing to DCG. At this point this year, they're on pace to do 800 million of cash flows this year. Uh, I, I saw so, revenue there.
1: Probably relatively well, similar. Okay, there, yeah.
2: fine. You know, relatively similar. Like how much does the whole pro have as cost, right? Uh, but I, I think he was referring to DCG as on pace to do 800 million this year. Let's yep. call that a 500 million, you know, 18 months, you can pay back 575, no problem. I actually think it was the 1.1 1. 1 in liabilities that they took over from Genesis due to the Alameda or the uh, Three Arrows um, situation in May of this year, June of this year, that that really put them over. And I, I think the 575 was actually totally fine. They would have been able to pay that back with cash flows over the duration of that loan. It's just the 1.1 1. 1 that,
3: that was too much. So, so one, one thing that's interesting about, and, and Yano, you made a really good point of like, you know, this was the last cycle. This was like, everyone needed to get to the table immediately or else you were going to be left out. One of the things about borrowing that's really interesting is that this was the first real cycle with, you know, like large amounts of borrowing outside of just perps and, and exchange traded instrument instruments. Like Genesis is, and I'm, I'm just looking at, you know, in in Q1 2019, uh or sorry q4 2019 they issued 65 million dollars of loans in q4 2021 that was like 51 billion and so like cash lending against collateral did not exist prior to this cycle and one lesson that i think we learned collectively is like which collateral is good collateral you know where do you set margin calls how do you sell liquid assets into a volatile market if things really start to go down because like usually when you're getting margin called like things are not like great around, you know, the industry. Um, and it was like this new concept and then suddenly got normalized and everyone was doing it and they were doing it against bad collateral. And now it's, now it's kind of over, you know, Voyager's out, BlockFi's out, Celsius is out, Genesis is out. The Bitcoin miners, the Bitcoin miners Bitcoin. are about to get hammered. Yeah. Miners about to get done. You know, crypto.com's out of lending. Yeah. Uh, blockchain.com's out of lending. Like, does this come back? How does it come back? One of the only places that you can get credit now is from Maple. Like, they are still actively lending, but that's what it's going to look like. All of these centralized lenders, like, they had their one cycle and they kind of blew themselves out. Now we kind of need to pick up the pieces and play some sort of new game to get credit so, back to the system. But that was actually going to be one of the questions that I asked. What do you think happens
2: to Genesis now? and And DCG for that matter.
1: I have heard again, there's a lot of rumors flying around. So I just want to say a lot of this stuff is just stuff I've heard from folks who've entered these sorts of agreements. But it seems like there were two types of customers to Genesis. There were sort of the eight big whales. And I heard Tarun say this on the chopping block, which was many of them had non-liquidation clauses. That's very problematic in and of itself. It seemed like if you weren't one of those eight to 10 firms, they're pretty good about collateralization ratios. And I... My... My sense is that Genesis ends up getting bailed out in some way, shape or form. And once you cleave away the, I don't know the, the dead skin or whatever, there's probably some, a decently healthy book of loans there. But I think ultimately I think it ends up being okay. I just, I don't know how much maybe Barry doesn't own it. I'm frankly not sure why you'd want to be in that business. The prime brokerage business kind of sucks
3: uh, in general. Eh, I mean, look at it, it's, it, it's basically the same business as Falcon X and Falcon X is like an $8 billion company. Um, like you can actually print cash if you're a good prime. There's not that many places. Don't mistake where...
0: the value their valuation with revenue though. Oh, totally. Totally.
3: Wait, yeah. the, the
1: observation I was this actually is, gonna
0: try, try good
3: to make...
1: money. I was I was gonna say that you print cash for a period of time, and then there's almost always a gigantic loss that offsets <laughs> that. So so do you guys wanna guess there's a list I was getting passed around today, the largest trading losses. It was actually is actually, you want to guess what the largest trading loss of all time was? You guys, you guys will know what this uh,
3: uh, Masayoshi Son uh, in the 2000s. I'm gonna say... I, think that
1: was lo- I think that was the largest wealth. <laughs>
3: okay.
2: Bitcoin, but I'm, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm just saying Knight Capital. Yeah, that's, that's
1: a good, good guess. guess. It was actually, at least according to his Wikipedia page, Bill Wang. And the nominal amount that was lost was $10 billion. <laughs> And that, Kill, single,
3: that's, that around, Fondo.
1: <laughs> you guys seen that TikTok meme? <laughs> and you can clearly see the more you fuck around, oh, yeah, you yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Bill, yes, Bill yes. Wang yes.
3: ran that playbook. Yes. He did. Yeah. yeah. And, found and he was doing the same thing where he was posting shit. Well, because in TradFi, you don't actually have to roll up with tokens or shares. You can just tell people that you own them. He was pledging them to multiple different primes, borrowing against them, borrowing cask against them, black. Buy- Buying more shares, doing total return swaps. Like, tra- TradFly still hasn't blown out this model. I, I think we're lucky to be moving past it, but yeah. All yeah. right. So, TradFly but, has but, run this playbook, by the way. This this is
2: subprime mortgages. It's, it's just a, the, the subpo- subprime sludge
3: that we're talking about here is FTT and SRM and GBTC, for that matter. Yeah. There's, so, there's some uh, just to get back to like the, what do we think happens with, with Genesis and and DCG? And I think disclosures here are that DCG is an investor in framework. Like we haven't engaged with them in in terms of trying to find out what exactly is going on. Um, But, you know, like my guess is that if I'm a creditor, you know, just play it out. If this gets put into bankruptcy, that's not good for me. I don't see my assets for another year. Maybe the crypto market goes down. Maybe they have to sell. Maybe I'm getting like 50 cents, 60 cents on the dollar versus like maybe what's marked to market right now. It's like you know, 80 or 90 cents. Like if I'm if I'm a creditor, I'm basically you know trying to tell Barry, like, hey, um, let's work something out. Like, I know you don't have the cash right now, sounds like it's just a timing issue. Um, I'm not gonna sue you, try to put you in a bankruptcy, but in return, you know, like, I, I just want to be paid back from the cash flows of Grayscale, from, you know, DCG, from, you know, things that are like, you know, not just Genesis, because I think the dangerous part is if you're a creditor and this gets put into bankruptcy, you only potentially have access to the Genesis assets, which are likely not enough to make you entirely whole. And, you know, you're not going to have that cash for, you know, a year as this works its way through the courts. Maybe you end up with a new owner, you know, who you have to negotiate with, who's like not a nice guy. Um I don't know. I think all the incentives are are not to go into bankruptcy.
0: So if you're a credit, let me ask you, if you were a creditor and someone put this deal on the table where you're, where you're, um, where, where you, where you basically convert into like DCG senior preferred like DCG debt or something like that, is that, would you take that deal?
3: I, I think the deal is more so like give us six months you know, like we, yeah. we have the cash, like we're not going to like restructure the company, make you a shale blah, well, blah, blah. just like, it's an IOU. Maybe it is like some sort of like senior structured note, but I mean, so Ryan Salkis, I think is the one that that uh,
2: put this out on Twitter, I think yesterday. I, I, I think and it, it's exactly how I was thinking about it, which is it's basically the Buffett-Goldman uh, situation in 2000, which is they had an illiquidity issue. It wasn't an ill solvency issue. And what they need to do is raise debt immediately and and raising debt immediately basically says, I mean, there, there is no time to wait six months for creditors because Genesis goes into chapter 11 in like days to weeks if there isn't any resolution on all of this. So you have to raise the capital to be able to actually, you know, have withdrawals turned back on. Otherwise you're gonna get sued into obliv- oblivion and creditors are gonna be up your ass. But the way to do that, I think, ultimately comes down to what do you give people for, for putting together the senior secured note? And it'll probably convertible uh, and, and it'll probably include some warrant coverage of DCG itself. You know, Barry just bought back however much of that, you know, $575 million. There's plenty of cap table space to go around if you need to issue more shares. I think the other thing too is that it's actually pretty disastrous. And, and you know, we haven't seen the full ramifications of this. I think we've, we started to see the tea leaves actually pretty disastrous for dcg if genesis goes under just from a brand reputation perspective like yeah that i think has second order effects that are obviously hard to see from where we're standing right now but I, I don't think you really kind of come back from that and so i think there's more incentive on the very side to get a deal done which is probably why you haven't seen a deal done yet which is you know he he's so, moving slowly yeah. but
3: i think other people so, understand this dynamic. The, the, the other thing to, to remember is that Genesis is for accredited. I mean, it's not even for accredited. It's for qualified purchasers only. Um, you know, my guess of how many clients they have, hundreds, a few hundred. Yeah. It's not yeah. a million creditor situation where like, you're like trying to like, okay, like, you, like you're, they're suing me this class action, blah, blah, blah. It's more so like, all right, my people, I'm sorry. Let me pay you back. It's going to take some time. Um, it's more manageable, I would say. Uh, then, then you know the FTX blowout.
0: Michael, it, going back to the Buffett Goldman thing. Um, so okay, so you, you you convert it, you get this basically like senior secured. No, you got you got some warrants in the deal or something like that. Who's the if you're making the analogy to the Buffett Goldman thing? Who's who's the Buffett here? Who who ends up being the the Buffett? I don't think it's a
2: single. I mean, uh, you saw CZ said
3: not interested due to conflict. CZ's
0: not, uh, is not do it. Like, I disagree I I I like with, with this take. I disagree
3: with this take. It's not going to be a buffet. It's just going to be Barry in DCG. Like they don't need right, to be right, rescued. Who? That that was the entire tone of that letter. He was like, "Thank you. We're not raising money. I'll let you know when we do." You know, these. That's these what I would should... say
0: if I needed to raise money. <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> if right. I, that if that I is raise fair. Money,
0: I'd say. If I need but, to raise money right now, I'm not going, hey, the, I need to raise money. I'm saying we the, don't The point of Barry's I'll letter. I'll say, fine, we'll open up a small round for some people. That's, that's how you raise the money. High valuation. Friend,
3: friends and family. Flow, only.
0: You know, fine. No, Exclusive float. deal. Yeah,
3: <laughs> come on. Letter, which is like the most important thing I think that we should, you know, be reading into. His position is, I have the money. Not right now, but like, you know, give me give me a few months. I'll have the money. I can pay you back. Trust me, bro. There's this, there's this loan that's due. I'm going to pay that back. Maybe that fills the hole. Yeah. Like that's his perspective.
2: Totally. But you can't just sit there and have like non-withdrawals on a lending platform and not expect for either there to be lawsuits or like a desire
3: or, or necessity to move into chapter 11, restructuring. If you work with creditors, I don't think you actually need to. That, okay. I think that's my plan if I'm him. That's what I'm saying.
0: What does that I'm mean? Advance right. to work with creditors, though, like to be like, all right, guys, sorry, this didn't work out.
3: You're going to get seven cents, like seventy cents on the dollar. Option A is I put Genesis into bankruptcy. Right, and you can Bat fight it out option. in the courts, like and you yeah. and you don't get access to DCG assets. So, yep. so like you want to go do that? Go have fun. That's not going to be that much fun for you. Option B is work with me, give me some time. There's a cash flow producing business. I can slowly fill this hole and pay you back. And I can pay you back probably sooner than when it would come out of the courts. But what that requires is us to have some sort of understanding where you're not forcing me to do anything where I put the company into bankruptcy. Like, can he actually do that is, is more of like a legal question. But, you know, that, that would be how I would present the situation.
2: But, but there's also option C, which I think is you know, what's been floated around, at least on Twitter more so, which is go and raise at the parent company, senior secured convertible notes, have that money flow back into Genesis and basically everything turns back on and illiquidity is no, no longer an issue. because I, I, And the reason why I, I skew towards that, I think, is, and maybe maybe there's other factors, obviously, that, that we don't know and, and we don't have any any information on this, but generally, I think if you have even 70 cents on the dollar or even 80 cents on the dollar, how many of those like hundreds of customers are coming back or they're going to be trusting in Genesis or they're going to be trusting in DCG going forward? Like the reputational hazard here, I think, is actually a, a really kind of major issue for DCG writ large, because mm. you know, what do they have going forward if it's not Genesis? And and maybe Genesis and the loan book and the lending Genesis capital versus their derivatives business and their prime business, but like nobody is using Genesis going forward if they even give ninety-nine cents back on the dollar. So I I, I think, you know, there is irreparable damage that can be done with option A or B
3: genesis is a zero I, I just i don't think it's coming back like
1: i yeah i'm, I'm actually a little I would, I would question that michael as well i'm i'm not why do you say that because it's kind of easy for me to close my eyes and envision a world where hey genesis didn't really work out but i'm still you know i, I think the brands of grayscale and coindesk and foundry are relatively separate i don't i don't understand why those two well why those businesses couldn't just exist and keep flowing cash into dcg so
2: so, so genesis has three different businesses Obviously, the lending portion of it is the largest portion. And that's, I I think it's called Genesis Capital. There's Genesis Derivatives, and then there's Prime, Prime Brokerage. As we just discussed, there is a a potential for Prime and and Derivatives. You know, they are registered in the the, uh, U.S. with the CFTC. They have a BIT license. Like, they have all the banking relationships. There is actual value to that business. Mm -hmm. It's just that the loan origination business has been their Prime business for the last X number of years. I think, I agree. I think Genesis, the lending side is done and not coming back. But if the entire business goes out, then you lose a, a massive opportunity to once again, build the the, war, the, the uh, Berkshire halfway of, of crypto. And it's not coming back if you ever, if you if you, you know don't give customers back 100%. Um, and so I, I'm saying if you want to have the prime and you want to have the derivatives business, at least have a fighting chance at having any opportunity of becoming a scalable business. The yeah, you have to rethink the
3: entire structure. I I, I know people who are still trading through Genesis Derivatives. Well, like I think the the trades are are clearing in a different manner, but like that business is very much intact. Like you have to remember, Genesis has the bit license. Mm. Like the whole New York squad, the Tradfibros Bros, who unfortunately bought the absolute top of GBTC. Um, like that's that's where they transact. That's where most of our New York friends and LPs, you know, that's where they do business. Um. And those are not the type of people that take gated withdrawals lightly. Um, sure. But I also think that the two businesses are very separate. And if you're just trading through the prime, you're probably not that impacted. But you're a little spooked in terms of you know getting your coins back as soon as things settle.
2: And this is my point. This is there. There is a su- survivable business with Genesis going forward, even if the lending side of the business goes away. Mm. Yep.
1: Let's um. Y- Undetermined. We'll have to see how it all plays out. Fun fact about GBTC, by the way, is that two percent fee is based on the NAV, not where it's currently trading. So if you if you bought GBTC, you're basically paying them five. What a sham
3: Management fee. Let, let me tell you the most down bad people on the planet.
1: <laughs> I would love, love the this. The
3: people who bought sixty four thousand dollars Bitcoin at a forty percent premium. That's a ninety thousand dollars Bitcoin. And now it's a fifteen thousand dollars mark-to-market Bitcoin with a fifty percent discount, so that's seven and a half thousand dollars. Yano Yano's down. having a seizure. Just just even two percent. And, and, and they're
2: paying. And they're paying five percent a year just to
3: hold on to that. Oh yeah. yeah. So like that is a, uncle that, that is like that. a ninety-five percent loss, right there. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well. My heart goes out to you if that's your if that's your situation.
3: Um, that's that's a tough one. And, and we don't even need to talk about the ethi people. Those people, <laughs> shadowlands, absolute shadowlands. <laughs> I think I think okay. my
0: uncle pulled that trade. Poor uncle.
2: <laughs> your uncle's <laughs> yeah, doing fine. Back. Your uncle's gonna be a good back. Thanksgiving bad. for you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> bad. <Top> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. So you guys- I'm sorry about that.
1: We, we've got a big six and a half pound turkey this year we're all gonna have to split it across the yeah. whole family yeah. we're gonna have to make it all all last w- One other thing that I think might be interesting to point out about Genesis and a lot of the CFI lenders in general is well, let's back up I think one of the differences in between this cycle and 2017 2018 and why this particular sell-off has felt so much more violent is, in 2017, you basically saw the collapse of ICOs and that sucked, but it was relatively contained. And a lot of people, you knew there was some good stuff in there, but probably if you had your pragmatic hat on, like this is my pragmatic hat, you knew that that stuff was going down. It, but I think the difference in between this cycle and that cycle is there was a lot of stuff that turned out to be vaporware or highly overvalued. And there was a more sophisticated market structure that allowed you to take leverage out on that. So now we're looking at more cascading leverage on this downdraft. But I also think you you found a group of people, SBF being one of them, and mainstream media has not tackled this side of, of what he was trying to do super effectively, was this game of low float, you know, these very low float tokens. And Matt Levine wrote something a little while ago when he was breaking down the mango hack. And he was describing this idea that it's impossible Pump and dump should be technically impossible because if you have something that's low float and you pump the price, when you go to take profits and sell it, because it's low float, the price should go back down just as, just as easily as it went up. So instead, what you really should be hoping to do is you should make an asset low float, you should pump the price way up, and then you should take out a loan when it's at the top. Yep. And that <laughs> largely is the game that SBF was playing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think there are some other players in the ecosystem that figured that out too. And these lending desks, Jason, I love that analogy you made. Man, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. Everyone felt like this is the end, and there's never going to be another time to get market share. I think that's they're sort of falling prey to these low float, taking out loan games that people are playing in the ecosystem.
3: If you understood, exactly. if you understand how a project like Serum was run, you would never ever take that as collateral, and like. <laughs> What's kind of interesting is Michael and I are not finance people. Like we studied business and econometrics in school. Um, but like, we don't have, you know, 20 years of institutional finance. Like, you know, like the, all the Genesis people did and, and all the other lending desks did. But these people made like very basic mistakes of, of like not doing the correct amount of work when you're underwriting financing. Like it's kind of on them. I feel badly, but Jesus Christ, like what, what, like, no, I, I. It's not on them.
2: I mean, it, they they didn't make mistakes. I think they were complicit and they knew exactly what they were doing the entire time. I, I think that this was premeditated. And no, and, I from mean the
3: no from what? the deaths. Maybe they maybe they're incentivized, but like it's not like pre. No, what do you mean premeditated? Self
2: murder. Oh no no no! I don't mean the deaths. I mean the people who created these ecosystems.
3: Oh yeah, the those people, people definitely. Oh oh oh. But the people the, who were underwriting that, like, come on, you really didn't know that, like. You couldn't go to CoinMarketCap and see that the float was 1% of the total market cap? That, that made sense to you to take it as collateral? <laughs> it was locked and it's still vesting? Come on, man. The locked
1: FTT is... I gotta be honest, that one blows my mind. I don't understand how that ever got...
3: Well, they did a similar point. thing on don't, UST. Don't worry, point. we're hedging it. We're hedging it. Yeah. <laughs> how?
1: <laughs> With what? Yeah. Did, oh, what instrument?
0: Didn't did, 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 did someone someone tweeted like, this was the beginning of the end? And and they showed Genesis doing like a billion dollar that, deal. That was USD. the that was the swap. And, that
3: was and the then, swap. And then
0: Doe, yeah, and then Doe was like, "Correct,
3: this was the beginning of the end, or something." Like, to be clear, I I told Dan CMS Holdings about that right before he tweeted it. So I want I want my alpha attributed to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like the scorpion and the frog. You know, like it was just bound to happen.
1: Yeah, it. Yeah, it seems a little disappointing. I also I think it really just does come back to incentives because, in my heart of hearts, you had the people that were making those decisions and and what to accept as collateral. I wonder how many of them were thinking about the long term health of the business or if they were just looking at these create this crazy commission check that they were going to print and, not necessarily over really much. All right, everyone, quick break from this episode to talk about our show's sponsors, Avalanche. Many of you know Avalanche as the fast, reliable, and scalable layer one. Uh, Av- the folks at Avalanche have a really great message for those of you who are in the crypto industry right now, which is bear markets are for building. So while a bunch of our uh, friends over in CeFi are, are kind of going through these struggles and travails, the folks at Avalanche basically put their heads down and are shipping products that builders want. The latest solution Elastic subnets.
0: Right. And just to expand on that, Avalanche is consistently upgrading all of their platforms, right? So on the platform side, you've got Elastic subnets, you've got new VMs on the infrastructure side of things. You've got core, which Mike, I just, uh, I know you used that the other day. I was was a bridge or I was a bridge Bridge or, or. yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, (laughs) So they're upgrading the infrastructure side with core and Enclave. The chain has had like no downtime, super customizable for devs. Uh, Yeah. If you're a builder, avax.network, avax.network, great place to be. But do Yano and I as well.
1: So you definitely go check him out, but click the link at the bottom of this episode. Click the link. Hit Otherwise, the we're not going to get any credit. Come on. Yeah, click the, the link at the bottom. <laughs>
0: All right. Give us the credit. Exactly. So yeah, All big right. thanks to Avalanche. Um, yeah, you. I mean, you, it, you just had a great experience with them the other day uh, on the user side of things. So
1: go check them out, guys. Thank us later. Let's get back to the show. I heard I heard Hasu say something in an in an episode a little while ago. There's an episode of I Pledge Allegiance, which I always plugged, but it's a great, great podcast. And there was this... Larry Socroneck, the one of the founders at Reverie, posed this question. And it's only in web two as well, which is, are you at the mercy of your stupidest competitor? In many ways, I think Blockfire was kind of at the mercy of their stupidest competitor in the form of Celsius. And and I think it's very tempting to think that way. And Hasu's response was, no, I understand why you think that way, but one of the actual benefits of crypto is you get these washouts in these in these cycles. And when I first I first listened to this about 12 months ago, and I thought, no, I'm totally on. Larry's side here. You are at the the whim of your stupidest competitor. But now with everything that's happened, I'm kind of on Hasu's side here. I think you could look at it as a huge benefit that you have these culling waves of everyone who's making bad decisions. You might have to sit through two years of agony and watch them get all this market share and all this stuff. But I mean, look at these invincible companies that have been brought to their knees, you know?
3: Uh, I'm, pr- so, I'm pretty pissed that our stupidest competitors nuked the space like 90%. I wouldn't say that we got off scot-free, mm. you know? I don't think, yeah.
2: The washers are definitely that.
3: like the feature, but like, you know, the bug was these people blowing the industry up. We're getting pretty close. But
0: they're,
3: I have a question. They're...
1: I have a question to both you guys as founders of a VC fund. And, you know, as Jason and I, as, as founders, do you view it as sort of an advantage though that maybe there were these... There are these these funds that were winning deals that are now no longer around or you guys are going to be able to say, hey, we were here during the bear market. We've lasted multiple cycles. Do you view this as good for your relative market share? I don't know. If I was yeah, taking I was, money from someone... I was, what I was literally about like,
2: to say is, well, there's two, there's two things. One, I'll, I'll get to your question in a second, um, but it's now non-consensus to be bullish. Just like a year ago, literally this week, it was absolutely non-consensus to be bearish and i think ultimately the non-consensus view over you know whatever period of time it takes to, for this whole thing to wash out ultimately that is the right perspective to have in crypto and i think you know 10 out of 10 you would be right over certain durations let's call them like 6 to 9 months so right now i think this is one of the most bullish things to have this wash out it's just like getting rid of all of those ico treasuries with eth and, and you know btc getting you know locked up in and docs and every single cycle before it and and before this one so I'm actually like, I, I think this is one of the healthiest. And um, you know, obviously, we have friends and we, we have peers that lost a ton of money, lost a, some, a ton of capital in this process. But uh, you know, in, in framework, lost value in investments that we've made. But doesn't really phase us. Doesn't really change any perspective. To your second question, I mean, we literally had a conversation yesterday with a portfolio or with a potential portfolio company, who you know we've been talking about investing in and leading the round. You know, the number one other firm that they were talking to was FTS and obviously that conversation isn't going anywhere anymore, but removing chips from the table leaves the last couple people standing and it just makes the whole place healthier. And I'm like exceedingly bullish right now, but you know, it's going to be, it's going to be probably a couple months of downward sideways, whatever. But ultimately I think we're going to find a new, a new thing to latch onto and, um, the other thing, too, is I, I think regulatory-wise, we're actually going to have some push uh, in a positive direction. I don't know if you guys saw Tom Emmer going on Fox Business yesterday, um, you know, pushing the narrative of this was not decentralization. This was not the crypto industry. This was one person in an unregulated, centralized finance operation. This is why we need positive regulation. I, I think that narrative is starting to pick up as well. But, you know, like the pieces are starting to get put back together. So I, I'm actually really excited right now.
3: Framework is incredibly hard to kill as well. Like we just managed to not, you know, go for the poison fruit every cycle. Um, mm. And I think that's one of the things about us which uh, keeps us around. I would
1: have to agree. I don't know. I, I'll speak from, but Jason, I think, you know, if we were sitting around having discussions about taking money, I think that would be a big part of it is, you know, how did you act during this last full cycle? How long have you been around? I feel like just the longer likely you've got a guest, want to get him on the on the mic um (laughs) (laughs) what's up michael senior um yeah i just think the longer you've been around the the more advantageous it is i I want to switch a little bit and talk about bitcoin miners this is something that we've discussed in the past a bit but it seems like the stress has has continued there and i agree a lot with you michael actually i wrote a whole we've got our newsletter writer out this week so i wrote a whole newsletter yesterday about how the time to be be bearish is basically a year ago and you know, it's non-consensus, but right now is kind of the time you should be thinking about feeling bullish. And it is just interesting to see where we've seen mining capitulation really pick up in the last just three weeks or so. And that has historically been the bottom, right? Right around the bottom is when the miners ultimately capitulate. And I'd just be curious, I don't know if there's there's anything really new that you guys, you know, have that you want to talk about there or anything that we haven't covered in the past or I don't know. I'm just making observations here.
3: Main thing is like the overlay of uh, 2018 and and Mm -hmm. present day. It's like one to one. You know, we had that that big nuke in January 2018 uh, hanging around there around 6K for like, you know, six or nine months. And then in in November or December, just the bottom fell out. And and this was a time when Bitcoin was literally everything. Um, And, you know, it nuked to 3K and, and that was driven by a minor capitulation. And it looks like the same thing is happening right now. ETH is still not made a new low, but Bitcoin is making fresh lows, uh, I think this week and, and last week as well. Um, I think real estate, I mean, Bitcoin mining is, is an interesting business because it kind of appeals to like the same types of people who flip Airbnbs and, and do like, kind of like these dumb real estate schemes. Like Bitcoin mining feels like re- real estate. You know, you have this thing, you build it, it's physical, you can look at it, you can see it. Uh, you can, you know, build better technology marginally, but like it's mostly the same asset. It produces cash flows, but at a certain level you go underwater. And I think, you know, of the Bitcoin mining teams that we've seen relative to the other technology teams in the space, just the level of talent is is far, far lower. Um, And so like you're seeing a lot of capitulation, you're seeing a lot of consolidation as well. Like now Foundry, the the DCG miner, is the biggest Bitcoin miner in the world. That did not used to be the case. Um, I think it's going to be a really weird time for Bitcoin over the next few years. Like I've made this public on Twitter. But, you know, when you have the market leading asset, the market beta asset, the one that everyone builds algos around and correlates around but it's also the heaviest asset in terms of, you know, it's 1.7% inflation per year. You know, at these prices, that's about five or six billion. Like the market's just going to trade heavy. And I don't think that's sustainable at all. And assets with better structural demand and supply dynamics are going to take their place. And so I don't know. Maybe we've seen the final cycle where Bitcoin actually leads and, and kind of, you know, the happenings are important. because uh, it just doesn't, it it just feels like Bitcoin is narrativeless at the moment. You have Michael Saylor, who's like the, the only super cycler that's still around, chilling stuff. But other than that, I don't know what they can do. It seems like the best thing that they could have is like another psychopath to start buying, but unclear.
1: I, I would, I would take the other side on that, actually. I, okay, yeah, I would take the other. What the way that I've sort of I think one of the driving forces of Bitcoin overall, Bitcoin has changed its narrative over the years. We all sort of know that, right? It started as as digital peer-to-peer cash, right? And then payments were a big thing. And then it was an inflation hedge. And now it's a store of value, kind of a digital gold. And a lot of people point to that as a weakness of Bitcoin. I, I sort of just view it as this thing that's very hard to change. It's like a real, you know, source of, uh, it, it's pristine collateral, whatever it is. It's something that you'd want to ideally own. I still do think the macro... Macro, macro, mic here. But I think the macro forces uh, they do support Bitcoin. I do, th- I do think if you if you zoom out of our our little industry, or we're talking about all this carnage that's going on in crypto, the same level of carnage is going on in tradfi and the real world as well. And as much as it's felt like a crescendo here over the last four weeks, I think we're about to see it play out on the bigger stage. You know, in in uh, the American economy and global economy, all, all over. And the, the biggest problem there is just how much debt we have and how much money we've printed. And I think there's a lot of value to the whole thing that everyone criticizes Bitcoin for, which is these people are frustrating, right? They get in your face, they just say the same thing. They just repeat the same lines, but there's this very just hardcore group and community. And if I had to make a prediction about what the next narrative is going to be in Bitcoin, it's censorship resistance. And I don't know. I think it I think it has a good, it's got this like political, very simple, easy to understand marketing that I think is going to continue to be relevant for a long period of time I I've, I don't have an opinion really necessarily on how that plays out compared to eth I think eth will win on other dimensions but I don't know I'd take the other side of it
0: I I would I would take the side the the one sentence thesis for Bitcoin in my mind is uh Bitcoin success is inversely correlated with central banks credibility and like it seems mm-hmm. like the credibility of central banks is going down and like when you want to make that trade or when you, when you want to take the other side of the central bank trade, central banker trade, it's like Bitcoin is the obvious investment in my mind is like, or maybe not the obvious investment is the, is the simplest counter trade
2: mm-hmm. to like, when would you say the highest investment. over the past five years, when would you say is the, the highest level of distrust in central bankers? Well, I think when is the highest level? Yeah. Over the last five years, when was the last, when was the highest peak,
0: right? inflation is out of
1: control
2: like like a month ago yeah like yeah
0: yeah
3: i I, I see where you're going with this and then bitcoin is low right now i i kind of i kind of see like uh you know like it's all kind of like one big trade in a way like it's not you know like bitcoin's you know properties are not going to make it like the fastest horse when when rates turn around or peak it's it's going to be just kind of like everything that's super interest rate sensitive is going to move violently and you know obviously I'm not a macro person uh, in terms of like my day job, but one of the things that I've been looking for, you know, this cycle is, you know, when, when is the 10 year going to peak? When, when, when did it peak in in 2018, the 10 year peaked in uh, October, mid October, maybe it was, maybe it, was, eh, it might've been November. And that was right around when the uh, Bitcoin matter capitulation happened. So you had rates reaching their highest, you had, you know, Interest rate uh, sensitive assets going down the most. You had the Bitcoin capitulation that happened. And then the Fed pivoted in, I think, January, February. And that was actually when marked the lows of the stock market. And so like the things that you really need to watch for are when are rates peaking, 10 years specifically. Um, and then when is the Fed pausing or, or you know reconsidering? Um, and in 2018, we didn't have as much visibility in terms of where rates were going to go as we do right now in present day. So the peak in the 10 year happened, it looks like. It peaked at about 4.25 it's down to about 3.76 um i'm not like predicting the return of free money or anything like that i'm predicting the return of cheap money you know two to three and a half percent 10 year and that's like one of the things where you look back and you say okay cool rates peaked that gives people more confidence in terms of interest rate sensitive assets that you're not just going to get wrecked by rates going up maybe you'll get wrecked by other things but you can kind of take that variable off the table and so, you know, you do have this constructive backdrop that's starting to form. And a lot of people are saying that, you know, deflation is now coming. We got the good October print, maybe have in December again, maybe December is the last hike, maybe January is the last hike, like we don't know. But like, you're starting to build this framework around things are going to get better. And I think that's the most important thing right now.
2: Yeah, I was going to say the narrative of Bitcoin over the last 11 years of its time, you know, and... Uh, our friend uh, Tom Lee at Fundstrat is the one who's reported this um, is it's just a risk asset. It is mm-hmm. viewed upon as being a risk asset, potentially an index on this entire industry for some people. Maybe for some people it was an inflation hedge for a period of time. But I think the direct correlation over the last 15 months of Bitcoin price with interest rate and an inverse relationship to that point to advances to point. Um, is probably the, the driving narrative over this next cycle, let's call it over the next three, maybe four years. And as rates start to peak, asset values start to go up. Bitcoin becomes one of those risk assets that you know, takes advantage of that, that trajectory. But I think going back to it, you know, Mike, all the things that you said about Bitcoin could also be applied to ETH, could also be applied to other assets in the ecosystem, you know, could also be applied to just like generally the crypto market writ large if you have sufficient decentralization and these assets are viewed as, you know, the anti, you know, central bank or the inflation hedge or, or just frankly the index on this industry. Um, so I, I think it's not just, you know, Bitcoin but it's actually everything in the space. The question is the relative weighting of the monetary premium that you get relative to the other assets in the space. And that's where I think we're gonna start to see, you know, a lot of change my my base case is that you know the next cycle is probably going to see something and i don't know which asset but i have my bets placed. uh you know there, there will probably be an asset that displaces number one
0: mm. oh, i wonder which one you're talking about
2: well, yeah which la- one you...
3: la- la- last little last little macro
0: you were fudding serum back, back. so you
1: could accumulate your bags right
3: <laughs> we pass on serum <laughs> and FTT. um so like one thing i didn't know when i was like you know 2017 punting uh coins from michael's basement um it's just like how macro works and how all the different asset classes work and you don't need to know it in depth you just need to know the basics bonds get bid first you know institutional allocators are just not going to let yields rise to like 20 30 percent like you're seeing like coinbase uh bonds trade at like 50 cents of the dollar which is like 15 percent yield like that's kind of as high as, as that's going to go like those get bid first then equities get bid you know, you, you can see that, you know, the S&P is, is up relative to where crypto is. Crypto is basically near the bottom. There's just like more value there, you know, in terms of free cash flow. They're like, people feel more comfortable about it. You have institutional allocators that have to buy at certain levels. Then that gets bid. And then crypto gets bid. It's the furthest out on the risk uh, curve. You know, it's the most speculative. It's the most reliant on retail, um, which is the most leverage of the cycle. And so like, you're starting to see it. Bids got Bonds got bid. The s and P's is over 4K today. Like, I don't
1: know. But I hear you. It's it's interesting. It, it could be, I mean, it could be start-stop, right? Usually when there's inflation, it's very unlikely. The two big periods of time that people look at in the United States where there was inflation in the 1940s and 1960s and 70s, there was this stop-start inflation where it was, it was a little bit what you were describing, Vince, which is kind of, hey, look, it looks like we've broken the back of inflation. It's really turned around. In many cases, at least in the 70s, it went all the way back down to three percent headline or something like that before it rocketed back up, and you do need to squash this this impulse of inflation. This, this is the tricky part that totally. is so hard to model. There's there's expectations around inflation, and I'm not you know in my heart of hearts. I guess the way that I ask myself this, and I, this is kind of the way I think about: Are we at the bottom in crypto? Is I ask myself, what would people say if the market went up fifty percent tomorrow? Not tomorrow, over the course of the next month, would people say? It's bull market, it's back. And if so, we probably haven't reached the bottom yet. Because in twenty twenty, you know, we went from four thousand Bitcoin when it puked in March of 2020 all the way up to like 16 before people started to say, Hey, maybe the bull market, you know, might be back on. And I think that just speaks to the that's how much hope you need to extract from the market before you you sort of know that you've really deeply reached the bottom.
3: Yeah, yes, but no. So like to your to your last point. You know, like there's this like uh, this, like this moral responsibility for things not to go up, allegedly. Um, mm. Same thing happened yeah. with COVID. How is crypto going up? There's a global pandemic. This is so wrong. Like, how could you guys mm. be doing this? Number go up because risk assets are getting bid because, infl- because interest rates are turning around in a different direction. Also, the 70s, that was 15 years of structural inflation. Like that, that was like a, a different thing. Um, you had gas prices that went up 10x, not 2x. Like, maybe we just had an inflation burp over the past year. Maybe Mm -hmm. Team Transitory was right, but got the timing wrong. And if you really think that, you know, if your framework for we're not at the bottom yet is that inflation is bad and that we're going to have to jack rates to like 6%, you're just betting against all of the deflation that you see in the market today. Mm -hmm. And I know Jim Bianco gets out there kind of on a limb and, and is like, you know, the inflation is not over, blah, blah, blah.
1: I love Jim. And I, I love
3: know, Jim, Jim and he's super smart. And I love that he supports he's great crypto. Man. But like yeah. you dig into his rationale and it all just seems emotional. Mm. You know, it just seems like he's pissed at all these people for making money in the assets that he doesn't agree with. Um, and so like, you know, one of the things that we do is like, you can watch people on Twitter. You can see when they're really hot. Like Jim Bianco was so hot for the first six months of this year. And I absolutely hated it because I disagreed with him. But then like, you can kind of see when they, when their tactical arguments start to fall apart and you can kind of fade them. Like, mm. I, I think that's what's going on with a lot of like the people who became very famous macro newsletter people, you know, bearish people. I don't know if, I don't know if their time in the sun is gonna last that much longer. And on, on,
2: the, on the reciprocal end of that, I would say you, you had a lot of people, unfortunately, like Tom Lee, who looked terrible for the first six months of this year, who are now starting to fade back in. And mm-hmm. a lot of the data points that they've been tracking are now starting to come real. Uh, you know, one of the really interesting points, just as like a, an example here, um, so month over month, core CPI is the, the metric to track, right? That's what everybody's looking for in terms of when the Fed has hit the, the numbers that they want. And 2% is supposed to be the, the rate at which you know, everything is fine and dandy, right? Well, this last print, and it, it, yes, it's one data point. You know, one's a data point, two's a trend, three's a pattern. But what you have is 0.27%. And you know, it, it's really interesting, but what happens when you have the month over month is that they only take the decimals place, the, the, the tenths one one decimal place and round up. And then that multiplied by 12 is the annualized rate of what this one print represents. Well, 0.27 rounds to three, point three, and then you multiply that by 12 and you're at 3.6 percent. What happens mm-hmm. if it was three basis points lower at 0.24, and then you round down to 0.2 and you're at 2.4%? We've hit our target.
3: We did it. <laughs>
1: Mission accomplished, right? Mission accomplished. speech. I, I, it's 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 hard to know. I mean, it's it's really difficult to forecast this stuff in general. I I, w- I want to return really briefly to what one of the points, Michael, actually Michael Evans, I can't remember which one he, we're making this point about, just the monetary premium. First of all, I I want to say I've, I hope I've been consistent in talking about this on different podcasts. It would be very easy. I respect what's going on in Bitcoin. I will say it's probably the more it moves into this very hardcore sort of libertarian bent. That's not how I am as a person. So I, it's very much easier for me to kind of look at the ETH community and that ethos. And that just more aligns with who I am as a person. So if you made me pick build on Bitcoin or ETH, I wouldn't even have to think about it for a second. But I do respect what's going on in, in Bitcoin. And I've always personally liked, in the same way, I never liked the DeFi on Bitcoin argument. Why can't you just let it be this beautiful thing? Why can't you just let it be this store of value? Why does all this stuff have to be built on top? It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I, that's how I sort of feel about this monetary aspect to ETH. I view ETH as this great, I don't know. There's no perfect analog, right? Oil, data, whatever it is, it's block space that you're selling. I don't understand. I think the monetary premium thing for me complicates it, whereas it should be optimized for selling block space to other protocols and just making the best of that, basically. I, if it were up to me, maybe this mm-hmm. my smooth brain take here, but I, I like things to just be simple and Bitcoin is the money he <laughs> sells the, the block space. And I think so, they can both be super successful.
3: So to your first question, like why can't Bitcoin just be left alone? Because it doesn't generate any fees. If it doesn't generate any fees, the security model is invalid. If the security model is invalid, it, it not only can it not be money, it, it can't really be anything. It can mm. It's just going to get hacked. So like, that's the first thing. And I think there is some sort of path where It's used only as money by enough people and it generates enough fees where it can generate the security and the fees, but it just is not playing out yet. And, you know, it's one of the most owned assets in America at this point. You know, 70 million people in the U.S. own crypto. Like if it's not getting there at this point, I don't think the path is that bullish. Ethereum and and like my framework for anything that becomes money is it has to be sustainable. Like money needs to be sustainable. It needs to have cash flows. It needs to be, you know, net deflationary. Probably it needs to be yield bearing. Um, And, you know, Ethereum is an asset that is used to secure the network. It's used to pay gas fees. Like that's the primary use case. The fact that it's used in DeFi as collateral, that all NFTs are priced in ETH, that people are actually staking it in some sort of like internet bond to earn yield. Like that means that it has a better chance of being money. And how I think about the monetary premium in this space is, There is a set amount of monetary premium. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's 500 billion. uh, And it's divided up amongst the assets that exist in the space, uh, you know, from number one Bitcoin to the hundredth page of CoinMarketCap, you know, the really bad coins. But the monetary premium is distributed on a power law basis. So Bitcoin probably gets 99% of that or, or, you know, 80 or 90% of it. You know, ETH probably gets, you know, 20% of it. Uh, the next asset probably gets, you know, 5% of it. This is excluding stable coins, by the way. Um, but in our view, the monetary premium is, is binary. You know, if the monetary premium is distributed on this power law, if the second largest asset flips the the biggest asset, it immediately takes all of that monetary premium for itself. Mm. And so, you know, why do, why, do we, why do we like Ethereum? Well, number one, you know, it has the most applications. It has the most usage. It has the most users. it's It's used the most as money but its use case as money expands its total addressable market from probably you know 500 billion to you know 13 20 or to 10 to 20 trillion like that's the thing that ethereum needs to do better as an asset and its and its holders like all the bitcoin people are aiming for 13 trillion they want to be the size of gold because they think they just have some you know right to it you know whatever but ethereum actually has a more credible path to going there and if you think ethereum has the chance to unseat gold is the canonical digital store of value for this generation it's it's uh you know yeah it's an, it's an attractive uh interesting asset so, so Do you think like it has of, a better chance of, other... of going there
0: because because you're
3: worried about bitcoin security model and you think the bitcoin security model breaks down or or so just... so the reason i think it gets there um is a couple of things number one the flows for ethereum are, are if you look at all the otc desk color we get Ethereum is crossing the desk more than Bitcoin at this point. It's as liquid as Bitcoin when you try to, you know, put in size or take out size. Um, You know, like the positioning would suggest that Ethereum actually, you know, is is actually favored at this point by institutional allocators. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Ethereum, you know, is very light as an asset. Bitcoin is extraordinarily heavy. It has miner selling. It has all of these assets that were seized. Rosalcon's Bitcoin, the Atlanta guy's Bitcoin. All the Bitcoin from Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi, you know, whatever, like that's going to be a headwind. And so if you think, of, if, like when I think about the space and, and Ethereum's potential trajectory, it's kind of conditional. You know, if it flips Bitcoin at a low price point, that upsets the entire, you know, path, paths that the space could take entirely. You know, mm. if it flips Bitcoin at a low price point, the next bull cycle looks much different. Um, and, and I think, you know, eventually multiple assets will flip Bitcoin.
2: So one of the other variables here, which I think is really important to call out, and it ties back to our first point of conversation, is, uh, you know, what is the utility of the asset itself and its ability to be used as a collateral asset as, you know, and, and one of the things that just, you know, as we're discussing, blew up is Genesis. Genesis was probably, if not the largest, but also one of the biggest and probably the only places in size to be able to get any sort of borrow against your collateral of Bitcoin. And if that goes away, you know, where else can you use your BTC as a collateral asset to be used productively? Whereas at the same time, DeFi, which has performed perfectly fine over this entire you know tumultuous period, ETH is the the number one collateral asset to be used in DeFi. So I actually think that there's another variable here, which is like the utility of the assets themselves, and and we can talk about it in the last you know couple minutes here, but. You know the ability to stake it, the ability to use that staking to be able to be put into other rehypothecated networks uh, like EigenLayer, you know, and, and restaking as, as a new narrative that's building up. It's just you're you're compounding the utility of these assets themselves to be used productively, and removing the largest kind of utility function for for Bitcoin in the in the point of genesis. I think is actually like a, another reason why
3: you know, the potential for this monetary premium to shift. And, yeah. and, it, and, and, and uses make things cultural. Like think of the culture of Bitcoin. I'm holding, I'm hodling, you know, it's in my wallet. It's in cold storage, whatever. Think of the cultural nuances of Ethereum. I'm staking, I'm swapping, I'm yield farming. I'm, you know, like doing all this, I'm restaking. Like when you tell your friends about the assets that you own, if you're actually doing things with them, it makes the, it's just self-marketing at a certain point. If you mm-hmm. have enough utility into it.
1: Yeah, you might be right. I feel like I'm sort of getting outclassed on this debate. So I'm just gonna shut it down and I'm just gonna say I'm support i support of both these things. Uh I, I want to get to one. You know, you talked about sustainability here, and I wanna I wanna bring up there was a really good thread that I don't know how you pronounce this this Twitter handle, Paulina. Paulina put out. On, oh yeah, Polina, yeah, yeah. Paulina basically put out on sustainable investing. I'm not sure if you guys had a chance to see this or or take a look, but you kind of ask this this question of what does sustainability look like in in terms of investing in crypto? And I really like the definition. Uh, I said, so in a crypto context, what does economic sustainability look like? Demand drivers, users paying to use the protocol, users buying the asset as economic collateral, medium of exchange, or just as a cult, or users buying the asset to earn dividends, including fee burns, yields, et cetera. Then on the supply side, it's the cost of operating the network and issuance. Yes, it's supply, deal with it. So economic sustainability is a demand equals supply and B issuance is greater than the cost of operation basically so I'd love to I'd love to get a sense of you know I, I think what what Polino is trying to do is put a definition around you know the very simple definition of business is you got to make more money than you spend and then you're there's a great Logan Roy quote you make more money I got a fancy new business idea for you you make more money than you spend and everybody calls you King con that's the, that's the <laughs> Logan Roy quote and I think, and I think for a while, I, th- I think in crypto it, it looks a little bit different. I do think you could define, especially something like Ethereum, as an economic system, necessarily as opposed to just a business. So I'd be qu- I'd be curious, like, what do you guys think about that that definition that Paulina laid out? How do you guys view sustainability within the context of these networks?
3: I mean, first of all, I think this is great. Like, it feels like there's like a renaissance of crypto investing coming back, where. Like, you know, people last year would just try to bamboozle you with, like, it's a parachain, it's an app chain, it's a modular stack with a data availability layer. It's like, how does this make money? How is this sustainable? What is the path for this to generate $100 million of ARR per year? Um, And, like, that's kind of what the core of what Polina is getting at here is, like, with these blockchains, you have this sustainability question that is, you know, it's apparent in businesses, but a little bit less so because you're literally printing your native token to cover the security of the network. And if you print enough, the asset goes to zero, you know, no one will want to hold it. And so like refocusing around the core concepts of how much does this cost to run? How much money does this make? How many users does it have? What are they using it for? Like, this is such a positive, um, new take on crypto investing and I hope it spreads a little bit further. Um, But in terms of like how things can be sustainable, I think Ethereum, like you can say, yep, check, like this is sustainable. Um, it, it's like, you know, net deflationary at this point, very interesting. Okay, check. Uh, can middleware be sustainable? Hasn't really been proved yet. Um, like they just had to print so many tokens to cover the cost of, of running their networks. Like it's still TBD. What level of fees flow through them? Um, the apps feel like they can be sustainable, um, but it's less of like a like a protocol question. Maybe you have an app chain or things like that, but like, are you generating enough fees through your you know, consumer set to maintain a smaller and more sustainable, you know, self-contained system that feels possible. And so like where we kind of net out on it is like, it's like the reverse hamburger thesis where you only want to own the buns. Like you want to own the canonical internet money layer at the very top. You want to, cause that's sustainable. Maybe you want to own the apps at the very bottom because those are sustainable as well. Uh, and we've seen that things, you know, albeit short lived, uh, Axie Infinity, step in, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't call this sustainable, but like you had enough consumers where you could make the case. Everything in the middle still needs to be proven out. Mm. And the I, the one thing I add to that
2: is that not to say that we don't think it's possible for it to be proven out. It's just that there hasn't been the use case for it yet. And I actually think one of the best use cases for how you make the middleware useful and, and therefore sustainable, I think is if cross-chain really becomes the advantage of having blockchains and, and differentiated blockchains. So imagine, you know, you've got sustainable games on each different individual Cosmos app chain for them to be able to communicate back and forth. There has to be a cross-chain communications protocol. That could be a place where you, you basically inject, you know, uh, something that's really easy to use, but it's like taking a small amount of fee to, to process that network transaction in the same way that it takes, you know, a small amount of gas every time you want to process an Ethereum transaction. So I think that, like, as we move more into the cross-chain or as we move into, like, not completely cross-chain, but maybe, like, some app chain, some main chain, some layer twos, like, that's where you can start to see this middleware play out. But
3: to Vance's point, I I think we haven't seen it yet, but not to say that we don't think it's coming. There's there's also the question of scale. Like, sustainable at scale is a lot different than sustainable at a smaller scale. Like, sustainable at a trillion dollars of market cap, that's, like, you know the eighth wonder of the world, if you can do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, but, so. you know, apps are, are much smaller. Maybe your app chain only has a market cap of a few hundred million and you're making enough fees to cover it. It's just about right-sizing it, well, at least a lot of it is. Mm-hmm.
2: The the other thing I'd add to this, which I actually... So the the revenue and the usage, I think demand drivers make total sense. It's just sort of like going back to the basics of what is the business and, and how do you value it. The supply side is actually the really interesting one because it also ties back into what we are talking about with Serum FTT yeah. and this sort of like lack of liquidity as being the, the core driver of value. I, I, this happens also, by the way, in every single tech company, especially in like the fan companies where every single year you've got two to three percent of new capital stock being printed, which goes as payment for keeping everybody employed and keeping everybody incentivized. And that I think is an interesting comp and an interesting model where like some inflation to the token, to keep everybody aligned, everybody incentivized could make sense. But it's how you do it. It's how your capital structure is formed. It's how your 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 cap table is situated. Because if you got an overhang of somebody who owns 12 and percent of your tokens and they could sell at any moment, like that's going to be a, a potentially dangerous situation. So like the supply side of this, I think is actually probably more interesting as we like pick up the pieces of the industry and, and think about how we restructure things going forward. The demand side, I think, is you know, it's it's that classic meme of always has been. It's like revenue, profit, usage, always has been. The supply oh, side, true. I think, is where we have a lot of, you know, room for, for new ideas.
3: A, a tradfi comp to throw out there. So Coinbase has done $1.2 billion in stock-based comp this year. Yeah. And they're probably exactly. going to add another $400, 500000000 onto that in Q4. Market cap of that company is $9.5 billion today. And you know, some of the stock was issued, you know, at a higher price point, some of it at, at this price point. But, like, you're looking at, like, 10% inflation of, you know, if you're looking at this as a protocol of what you own and coin. Um, and you do have the fact that it's not immediately market dumped by the people who get it. It's not, it's best thing, you know, it bests over time, but like they granted that this year in previous years, they've granted a lot more like, and that's hitting the market. And so there is this question of inflation and sustainability with even the largest public companies to, to Michael's point.
1: I have a I have a thought on that. And I think not, not that you were doing this Vance, but there's a temptation to be like, wow, 10%, that's really high. I think the, the important question to ask there is what are you getting for that 10% inflation? Because if you get the labor, if if the the labor that you acquire for that 10% inflation is going to double your market cap, this is where it's, it's difficult to measure actually what your ROI is on, on whatever labor you're acquiring there. But it just depends on, it depends on the return for what you get. Or what
3: you're spending? Totally, on. but but they paid their CPO, who you know by I'm all. That's defending Coinbase here, by the way. I, I also I know. Like, he got clipped off three hundred mil. Like you know, how much did that add to the market? Not. If you follow the chart, negative. You know, negative. I will lot. say,
1: Brian <laughs> Armstrong has been. Uh, it's been Coinbase recently. I did see though that he's still so based. He, he is he is one hundred percent. Has been dumping stock here at forty five bucks, and I actually was gonna buy the other day, and I was like. But damn, Brian's selling here. <laughs> so, no, 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 no. Hold on,
0: hold on. Uh, uh, no, no. Uh, he, out. He, the, yes.
3: Wait, wait. Let Yano go. Let Yano go.
0: No, I was just going to say, he, he, he went on Lex Friedman's podcast like two months ago or something. And he's like, uh, he's like, I am telling the market this. I am going, I have an auto sell on. I'm going to sell the same amount of stock every single month for the next couple of years. And I'm doing it to fund. Uh, it's like 2% of the allocation of, of, of my total stock. And I'm doing it to fund I think his life sciences business or whatever he's doing on the the biotech side or something. So he did signal to the market and he said, he's like, I'm going to sell the same amount every single month. And when it's really, when the price is low, people are going to freak out. When the price is high, people are going to freak out. But that's what I'm I'm telling you. One thing to to
2: note, exactly that. One thing to note is that any insider or or frankly, anyone who has privy information at a publicly traded company, like because I was a product manager and had access to the revenue figures at Snap, I had to be put on what's called a, a plan 10 B 51 which is basically you, you literally build a plan and issue it or, or you send it into the SEC and you say at this price point or at this date, I wanna sell this amount of stock either in terms of number of shares or amount of value. And so this, this plan has literally probably been filed with the SEC for the past 12 months. Anyone who is selling stock who's an insider who has to like, you can track on SEC, you know, Edgar, um, all those people are, are predetermined, so it's not up to them. Uh, it's something that's literally been sitting there, and it has a, a three-month cooling period. And every twelve months, you can you can change it. But you know, this is uh, everybody jumps over like, oh, insiders are selling, insiders are dumping. Um, man, wouldn't it be nice if we had ten B
3: five ones in crypto? Yeah, it would <laughs> sounds be. like Brian's getting into some some light affective altruism. <laughs> Hopefully, not too deep. <laughs>
0: I've got limited. You never, comments, so. you never want
1: to go full. Yeah, you never want to go. Never want to go full. Yeah, yeah. Do we have five minutes for meme of the week? I know we're, yeah, I know we're running low, but yeah. there's only one. There's only one candidate for meme of the week this week, which is hold on a second. I'm going to share my screen. There. Can you guys see? <laughs>
3: Yeah, this video. <laughs> oh yeah, this is so good. <laughs> I mean Oh you, can't hear, Just you can't, hear Just, can a, can't hear it. Wait till they talk. We're
1: gonna put you can't hear it. All right. No, you it's can't hear it. Difficult. We're gonna we're
0: gonna we're gonna put a link in the show notes. This is the best this okay, is the best a, video I've seen Put a, all
1: put a link in the show yeah. notes, yeah. I think I think there's oh. a non-zero chance, like a ten percent chance that Elon Musk and AOC see this, and are like, Yeah, we should be hooking up a hundred percent. I, I put it above above 10% if that, that ends up happening. I was like, I
3: would love that.
0: That would That'd be such a narrative violation. That would be such yeah. a narrative violation. People would not know what to do with that.
3: I would love yeah. that. Yeah. You and I, we are not so different. <laughs> we are not yeah. so different. <laughs> we are not so different.
0: Um, all right. We'll link that in the show notes. I thought we could play the sound. But, yeah. Yeah. Vance, you can use uh, the next episode to school us on the eGen layer.
1: Oh, yeah. It's um, Eigenlayer,
0: bro. It's German. Eigenlayer? <laughs> Eigenlayer. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, All right. We'll, we'll skip the the German accent attempts here. Fellas, this was a really fun one. Um, guys, happy Thanksgiving for everyone who's happy listening. Thanksgiving. Um, drown your sorrows in some gravy. Yeah. And uh, Hey, do you have any uh, thoughts on how to talk? This is going to be, if, if this is your first um, I'm writing this newsletter today. Our, our uh, guys out sick, Byron and Last year, I went back. I wrote this thing like how to be the crypto expert at your Thanksgiving. If you've never been that crypto person at a Thanksgiving table during a bear market, just get ready, my man. No one's asking no. you how to set up your Coinbase this year. It's it's a sea of smug faces and
3: how's down the wine? I'll go to bed yeah.
1: early. I, no, I. <laughs>
0: I, I got to, I got to my, I got to my in-laws yesterday, and they, that they basically were just looked at me. And they're like, do, "Do, you want to talk about crypto, or, or no? If, you, if you don't, it's totally <laughs> fine." So that's how you know, that's how you know it's really bad. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> far, like, are you okay? Yeah. yeah so
3: that's how to show them monitor. the Blockworks monthly active users. Like, you know, at least you guys got. a our new website. You. You yes, yeah?
2: our new website, pretty clean. I it's saw that. Amazing. Looks good. We
3: yeah. yeah. it relaunched. Good. Yeah.
2: Shout out to you guys. Last night, I had uh, a couple of my parents' friends came over for dinner and literally went the entire night until the last seven minutes as everybody was literally packing up. And literally one of my parents' friends goes, so do you think she knew? I was like, wait a second, how deep are you into this? And <laughs> she had read every single article. She was like following the tweet threads, uh, you know, and, and, you know, not into crypto whatsoever. I, I think this story has like captivated audiences. But to Yano's point, everybody's a little cautious to talk to us about it.
1: It probably, for the it best. has, it has captivated audiences. I, you know, on, on the margin, like a lot of the, you know, bi- don't talk about a lot of crypto talk about a lot of macro stuff and everyone, all the macro people. I mean, there's some element of grave dancing, I think that's going on there, but everyone wants to talk about Sam. Make- it's the biggest story in finance. I think for the last year, I would say. Mike, I mean, let so me ask that. you
3: this. All, yeah. all the on the margin guests that are super bearish doing victory laps. Let's, let's play the clock forward six months. Things are looking better. Cryptos, you know, rallying, like are these people gonna have as loud as a megaphone? Are you still gonna wanna like, you know, have them on your pod? Like, how how does it all work? The thought leader economy.
1: I, you know, on the margin initially was, I had this theory going in that if you just talk to these people kind of in their language on their level about Bitcoin and crypto that you could kind of break down some barriers and there'd be interesting conversation. And like two years later, I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think they have a lot to contribute and I'm like interested in their perspective on the world and investing and in general, but no, I don't, I think they're just going to, most of them are just going to stay bearish forever. Keep and in I mind don't.
3: they're all incentivized to stay bearish.
1: Yeah. Well, let me ask you guys, what do you think? So we talked about Tom Lee. There are these, I used to look at this and wonder why this was, there are perma bulls and there are perma bears. They're always perma bulls, perma-bear, and they don't seem to shift. They're just always bullish, and then they have their kind of day in the sun, and then it turns around, and then it kind of comes back. And wh- why do you think that is?
3: Optimism versus pessimism. Also, like, it's it's very important. Like, we know a lot of perma-bears. They're, mm. uh, they're like the paranoid ones. The ones mm. who are like, you know, tinfoil hatting, for, for lack of a better word. And they have not had their day in the sun for almost 20 years. Mm. And, you know, finally, the guys who are predicting oil going to 300, like, I don't know if you follow H Cuppy or those guys, like, you know, oil is going to 300, all these Saudi memes. And, you know, congratulations. You know, you had your five minutes in the sun. Oil didn't go to 300. It's back below, you know, 85. Um, But, like, everyone really enjoyed meeting you. Uh, And we'll see you in 10 years. I think that's kind of the prognosis for them. And it's unfortunate, but, like, technology doesn't stop. It just keeps innovating. Things get better. If you look at any measure of standard of living over the past hundred years, it's only, it's up only like the optimists are usually right. So
2: I, I agree with that. I would say from an investment standpoint or anyone who's in the investment business, you, you basically have two ways of thinking, which is what possibly could go right versus what are all the ways that this could go wrong. And those are like two very fundamentally different views. Obviously a venture and growth perspective is what are the different ways that this could go right? And you know, thinking about it from a macro perspective, being more of a trader mindset, or, or frankly, just like private equity, or you know, it, it's how are all the different ways that this could go wrong and let's go off and defend all of those. And so I, I think from a business perspective, you, you can't be straddling both at the same time. You really have to come at it from one angle versus the other. And that just like tends in a more pessimistic versus optimistic perspective.
1: Yeah, no, which which between the two of us, where, where do we shake out there? What do you what do you think?
0: I mean, I mean looking at the eternal. <laughs> <Yana's laughs> but That's I, my guy, I,
2: l- l- let's be clear: <laughs> anybody in this industry has to be an optimist. So, 100%. like, first and foremost, I was gonna say,
0: Mike, I was gonna say, Mike, you are a
2: put yourself in any other
0: place and you're you are a very optimistic person. Put yourself compared yeah. to me and you're like an eternal pessimist. But uh you know, it's all it's all <laughs> relative. here Yeah. I I will say I will
1: credit you and say you were the person that convinced me that optimism is the better strategy. I will say. Just watching how Jason Yanowitz lives his life, I was like this is the better strategy. <laughs> for, for sure.
3: You're also a lot happier.
1: Yeah, you are. 100%. I
3: find.
1: Yeah. Last thing I'll say is yeah.
3: so two people who are incentivized. It's been a tough or, year for optimists, feel- but it's a better life strategy. Two people who love to be bearish. Number one, the perma bears. Number two, people who have recently lost a lot of money. Mm. If I've lost a lot of money, I'm telling you that you're going to lose a lot of money too. Because that makes me feel better about losing money.
2: Mm. (laughs) Number three, people in cash.
3: Yeah, people in cash. Yeah. God bless them. That was kind of the best. Number four, Bitcoin Maxis. (laughs) Or Bitcoin Maxis. Yeah, they just hate everything.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think optimism is the better strategy. I, w- I will say there is a little element of me that I do empathize with. The, maybe that's why I like those those talks so much because I do. I, I will say there is some element, Vance. I, I empathize a lot with what you said, where you kind of ask yourself why they say they they say they don't do this. But you listen to the gold bugs, the Bitcoin Max, and they're like, you just wait. Like wait until hyperinflation and and there's this desire, right? I, I think they've correctly been label this wanting to watch the world burn. And I think the underlying urge of that is the desire for actions to have consequences. That that's how I personally have ascribed that. Because I do think you could make the case where you look at you look at the system that TradFi is based off, which is basically just endless waves of money printing. And you know, all these problems that we're facing in crypto have never really fully been solved in TradFi. They've just been consolidated. You've just There have been various waves of bad debt and assets have collapsed and they've just consolidated them onto bigger balance sheets. And now we're at the end of that cycle because that's all moving up to the government. They've never even actually solved it. They've just kicked the can down the road for a long period of time. And I think there are people that have looked at that and said, this isn't necessarily sustainable and they want there to be the actions to have consequences. That's what I ascribe the underlying emotional dynamic to that particular mindset. And a part of me... I see where they're coming from. I don't want that to happen, personally, but I so, see where they're coming
2: from. I actually don't There's... disagree with those perspectives. I think it's just a matter of time scale. Like, they mm. could be right. It's just a question of when will they be right.
0: Yeah. That... Here's what it comes down to.
2: Optimism versus
0: pessimism. If the pessimist, if the cynic and the pessimist is right, what do they get? They get to say, I told you so. If the optimist is right, they get to then go build the thing. And... It sounds a lot more fun to build the thing. <laughs> I hope people are watching on YouTube for my air traffic
1: control. Here. Here's I'm the deal. Oh,
0: this argument. It's <laughs> better Stay than you were, uh, on the rock. I'm with you. Yeah, Stay optimistic.
1: With you. Yeah. I'm optimistic. Yeah, I'm with you guys. Optimistic. Can't live
3: count. your Can't live your life scared. This of things does not compound.
1: Yeah. No. And happy Turkey Day, everybody. Happy Turkey Day. Um, happy Turkey we'll day. day. We'll see. We'll see everyone on on the other side.